This podcast episode should not be used as a substitute for medical or mental health advice. Individuals are advised to seek independent medical advice, counseling, and or therapy from a healthcare professional with respect to any medical condition, mental health issue, or health inquiry, including matters discussed on this podcast episode. Welcome back to the Narcissistic Abuse Support Platform podcast brought to you by Unfiltered. This is episode 6. In today's episode, Nikki, a therapist and professional counselor, will answer these five questions from our community. 1. How can I deal with my narcissistic in-laws? My wife isn't a narcissist, but her parents are just awful. I don't want to just throw all this information at my wife at once. I just want to help her heal. 2. One of the problems that I run into when setting boundaries is that people tell me that my standards are too high. How can I prevent these kinds of comments from causing me to doubt myself? 3. Even though I know all about gaslighting, I still fall for it. Do you have any tips for dealing with gaslighting? 4. I have been in a financially abusive relationship for years and I want to escape. How can I hide money from the narcissist when they have full control of the family finances? 5. What are the most reliable red flags that I can search for in people to steer clear of narcissistic abuse? Hi Nikki, thank you for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you in this podcast episode. Hi Rihanna, it's really good to be here and thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So let's get started right away. So the first question is, how can I deal with my narcissistic in-laws? My wife isn't a narcissist, but her parents are just awful. I don't want to just throw all this information at my wife at once. I just want to help her heal. Okay. Well, there's really two questions in one there. So, because there's two different things I hear. One is how to deal with the narcissistic in-laws and the other is how to help your wife uh, with her parents and the, and the pain that she experiences with them. So, in terms of how do you deal with your narcissistic in-laws, um, I would just take you back to Grey Rock and uh, you can read up about Grey Rock and figure out what it is. But to me, the way that I summarize Grey Rock to people at the beginning is that when you communicate with these narcissistic people or toxic people, you keep your communications polite, factual, and neutral. Polite, factual, neutral. So that means um, you don't share a lot of personal information. You keep your self-disclosure to yourself. You definitely don't discuss things that are important to you, whether that's things like your values or big occasions coming up like birthdays or anniversaries because narcissists absolutely love to sabotage those. So you keep the conversation polite, factual and neutral and as much as possible you stay with just, you know, arrangements, simple arrangements like um, and 
simple subjects like football or sport or the arts or dance or a movie you saw or that kind of sort of sh small talk, shallow talk. Don't go anywhere deep. And when they dig deep, change the subject. And another thing is uh, I think that can keep us kind of coming back for more pain, if you like, is that expectation or the hope, wishing and hoping that you could have a normal relationship with them, like the kind of relationship you, you would hope for. So a big part of accepting and healing from relationships with these kind of people is accepting that you will never have a normal relationship. They will never be kind, generous in-laws who will recognize how miserable they make your wife and yourself. So accept that. So leading on to the second part of the question, which is how do you help your wife heal and you don't want to throw all that information at her at once? Well, great. I'm glad you know that because, <laughs> because we can't change other people. We can only change ourselves. Wishing and hoping that someone else will change is kind of futile. So they need to, rec your wife needs to recognize what, uh, just how toxic her parents are. And you telling her that she's more likely to risk, even though she trusts you. So when you tell someone, you can't tell someone uh, that you've diagnosed the problem, either their problem or their parents or their family's problem, and expect them to receive that information well. They won't receive it well. They'll block it. They'll go into denial and they might even attack the messenger. So if it's something that you've already discussed and already contemplated and she's asked you, maybe do you think they're narcissistic? Great. Then you can, you can take this path together. And really one of the strongest principles of trauma recovery and of psychological healing overall really is good, solid, safe, secure attachments with other people. So if you and your wife have a good, secure attachment, that's the main thing. That's the main thing that's going to help her heal. If, um, if she hasn't if she hasn't followed the same done the same amount of research into narcissism and everything that you have and she's a kind of absolute beginner then there's a book i recommend by a christian written by lived experience christian counselor in uh texas i think she lives in america so it does have the christian context but it's perfectly great for readers who are secular and that's called Healing from Hidden Abuse, and the author's name is Shannon Thomas. So this is a fantastic book, which I recommend to my clients, um, particularly for the children of narcissists. And it helps, as you read the book, to really unpack what your own individual experience was, 
Um, so you can compare your experience. You will resonate with some things in the book and you won't resonate with others. So you'll figure out along the way of reading this book, you know, whether or not you think your parents are narcissists for a start. Um, and also Shannon has a really good stab at something that everybody likes to try and have a go at, and that is determining whether there are stages of recovery. Um, and I quite like Shannon's um, hypothesis about the stages of recovery. And when it's you, when it's me that it's happening to, it's great to be able to go to the book and go, okay, I can see that I'm making progress because I really relate to being at this stage three or stage four or whatever. Yeah, so, uh, and I also just want to say that it, it can be really hard watching someone else suffering, the, the someone you love suffering. And I guess that's the basis really, isn't it, of, of what I do, what we do as clinicians, what um, um, Unfiltered is doing by putting this information out there. It's being with the ability to be with someone else who is suffering. And that's the meaning of compassion. Um, the, you know, the linguistic meaning of it. Um, so as much as it's difficult to be with someone who is suffering or to watch someone suffer and feel that you have the answers if only they'd behave differently just keep an eye on your own feelings your own healing your own ability to be detached and yet be there to support your wife um i think that's probably all i have to say about that at this stage thank you so much that was a very very great question and thanks for the book recommendation as well You're welcome Let's go to the second question. One of the problems that I run into when setting boundaries is that people tell me that my standards are too high. How can I prevent these kinds of comments from causing me to doubt myself? Yep. Okay. I'm sure a lot of people, if not everyone, relates to that. Um, you possibly don't know that in Buddhist psychology, doubt is considered to be one of the five hindrances. So doubt is something, in other words, is something that everybody experiences. So, uh, and it's kind of normal. <laughs> um, but if you're, if you're, ex obviously you've asked the question because you feel as if, or for some reason you're judging or discerning that you have higher levels maybe than other people of second guessing yourself or doubting yourself or doubting your rightness and uh, for me as a compassion and mindfulness based practitioner i think that i believe the solution to that would be to go towards your values really do a deep dive and unpack what your values are now because our values do change through different stages in life 
and they tend to be tipped upside down and really change big time after narcissistic abuse um, because other things become um, supremely important. Once we've been lied to and gaslighted and all that sort of stuff, things like not lying, not gaslighting become very, very important to us. And um, so take a deep dive into what your values actually are. Um, there's lots out there, uh, lots of lists of values that you can find on the internet to kind of go through and um, tick off the ones that you relate to and then try and narrow it down to so that you've got your top 10 hits, your top 10 values, write them down and then bring them into your decision making so that when you have a decision that you're doubting yourself or second guessing yourself about because other people tell you that your your standards are too high just simply ask yourself is this decision or is what i just said or is what i'm about to do aligned with my own personal values and you will know the answer to that. You will know that definitively. You won't just know it in your head. You'll feel it in your body. It will resonate everywhere. This is right for me. What's right for me? Yeah. Um, and of course, in, in terms of the overall umbrella argument about people telling you that your standards are too high, um, I'm sure I don't need to tell you that that's their problem. <laughs> if they think your standards are too high, that is entirely their problem. There is no such thing, in a way, as having standards that are too high. Yes, there's a thing called perfectionism and all of that, and going too, too far um, can make us uncomfortable and we can cause our own suffering, but... You know, all the for me, one of the um, one of the bottom lines of narcissistic abuse recovery is for us to try and keep the high moral ground. Or as Mrs. Obama once said, "They go low, we go high," because our conscience is clear. When you're dealing with a person who you wonder how do they sleep straight in bed at night with some of the things they do. How we sleep well in bed at night is by knowing that we're doing what we believe is right. We're not um, compromising our own high moral standards. And this means that we reduce our own suffering. When we stay in alignment with our values, we reduce our own suffering and it increases uh, eudaimonic happiness, which is e most easily described as contentment or peace and contentment. We come closer to peace and contentment the more everything we do is aligned with our personal values. Yeah. <laughs> is that... Does that answer the question, Rihanna? Did that give you any more questions you want to ask as a result? 
That was very, very great and comprehensive answer. Thank you. Thank I, you so much. Thank you. Okay, let's go to the third question now. Uh, even though even though I know all about gaslighting, I still fall for it. Do you have any tips for dealing with gaslighting? Yeah, this is a pretty big, big issue and a lot written about it. And um, of course, the term is now pretty mainstream here in Australia anyway. People in the mainstream know about it. And uh, I'm pretty sure, pretty certain that that's come out of the narcissistic abuse online community. Um, an understanding of what gaslighting is because it does come in many forms in a way and it sort of relates a bit to the last question in that it's it's behavior that makes us doubt our own reality or our own memory um, and I think uh, in terms of tips for dealing with it well firstly don't beat yourself up if you have fallen for it because that's the whole point isn't it it's like um, we don't know we're being lied to with lying. Um, so, you know, what's the point of beating myself up for falling for the lies? And it's a bit the same as gaslighting. Gaslighting is designed to con us, to scam us, to trick us. So if we were tricked, it's, you know, it's not because we're idiots or foolish or whatever. The thing is that waking up to gaslighting is really quite a moment. I mean, I'm sure most of your viewers and you can kind of recognize the moment that you went, I get it. And now I see it. And, you know, it's like the scales fall from your eyes or, you know, you walk through a door and close it the other side of you. And that, that side of the door, you didn't understand, you didn't get gaslighting. And this side, you totally get it. You totally get it now. And you start to see it everywhere, a bit like narcissists, you start to see them everywhere. Um, but the thing is, unfortunately, that just waking up to it and just noticing it and seeing it and recognizing it doesn't really ease um, the suffering that it that can create. So to me, with um, with dealing with gaslighting, the same rules apply, even if you're not dealing with a narcissist. Um, for example, I see corporate, excuse me, what I call corporate gaslighting happening quite a lot now where, um, for example, recently I went to a website that, uh, a government website, and on the front page it said, you're not obliged to link your account to this other government agency if you don't want to. So then I went to complete their uh, the login details, entered my um, login did and every time I went to put my password in it automatically took me to the site the government service organization that the, the words were saying you don't have to join your account if you don't want to so in other words it, the truth was I could only access my account if I did link my account but the words on the front page were saying you don't have to so they're that kind of gaslighting, I notice that it's happening left, right and centre, almost to the point of just downright companies and businesses are just lying, you know, just telling lies. <laughs> but with individuals, with peoples, maybe that's just, um, you know, because I've got a bias for seeing it. 
it's the same rules. So it's the same rules as Grey Rock. If you have, if you can create distance with this organisation, this person, this group of people, then do slowly, slowly draw away from them. If keep these people at a distance, don't let them be a big part of your life, because people who gaslight do it habitually to the point where it becomes second nature to them, um, and. They're just, you know, they don't even have to have deliberate harmful intent. Just a lack of empathy is enough. A lack of empathy and understanding is all it takes for those kind of people and those kind of organisations to cause us harm. So go grey rock, stay away, create distance and definitely over overcome any natural impulses you might have as a highly sensitive person or a highly empathic person to fix them, to help them to see the error of their ways and to ask them to stop gaslighting. Let go of that. Let go of that <laughs> because it's not going to happen. Thank you. Yeah, I totally agree with that. <laughs> uh, Follow-up question. Um, yeah. You mentioned that lack of empathy mm -hmm. that but do you do you think why do these people gaslight why do narcissistic people gaslight is it just because they have lack of empathy or is there something else to why they do this kind of behavior yeah i think um i think that's the eternal question isn't it and and narcissistic so-called narcissistic abuse experts around the world disagree on this on the answer to that um, but uh, if we think of it in terms of the, the, the concept of a personality strategy, so if we think of ourselves, every single person in the world, as building up a strategy from childhood about how they want to be in the world, so we all, assuming we all do that, then narcissistic people, sociopaths, psychopaths, Machiavellians have built up a strategy over a lifetime and these complex behaviours, you know, toxic behaviours that they use, the reason they've used them, they've learnt to use them and include them as part of their strategy is because they work. In, for them to achieve what they want to achieve. So the narcissist, highly narcissistic person's main drive, you know, one of their main drivers, motivators, is I want what I want. I want to get what I want using any means possible. And um, and if that means lying, so be it. I'm, I've become a very good liar. I learned that as a child. I've built on that strategy all my life. I've never suffered any bad consequences for it. So I'm going to do it. Same with gaslighting. I know that if I say one thing and do another, most people will only listen to what I say and not notice what I do. And that will help me get what I want. Thank you. That makes perfectly sense. Great answer. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, let's go to the fourth question. Mm -hmm. I have been in a financially abusive relationship for years and I want to escape. How can I hide money from the narcissist when they have full control of the family finances? Yeah, 
I I find this uh, question very difficult um, to answer because I don't know all the details and obviously it depends on every individual case. But I can say that I'm not a financial advisor, but I suggest you find one. Um, if you literally, if this person literally doesn't have their own separate bank account, then it's very difficult. If, if this person is an adult person without a normal, normal adult life, you know, like a bank account and a passport and all those things, it does make it very, very, very hard. Um, however, in Australia, I can't speak for Europe, but uh, in Australia, there there are domestic violence or family violence organisations who can supply this advice to you and their websites will give you this advice. So I would check your local family violence or domestic abuse organisations and ask them about a safety plan or an escape plan. In Australia, banks also, the, we have four big major banks and they now have um, understanding and training in domestic abuse and financial abuse and they will have specialist people, customer service people that you, and go, you can go to speak to about with a question such as the one that you've just asked. Um, and perhaps the difficult thing is that in order to hide anything from a controlling narcissist or a coercive controller or someone who's, uh, you know, sort of got you under surveillance of some kind, we have to learn how to we have to take a leaf out of their book. We have to learn how to be covert in the things we do. And that can be very, very difficult for someone who's who doesn't have a personality strategy that involves learning how to keep secrets or tell lies or be covert in any way. Um, but to, if, if we've got time, I, I will read out for example, a safety planning checklist uh, from one of the Australian organisations. And uh, so if we look at safety at home, that is, if you're staying, you're still in the relationship, they suggest these things. Speak to neighbours that you know and trust and ask them to call your emergency um, responders, police in your area, whichever that number is. In Australia, it's triple O. In America, it's nine one nine nine nine. I'm not sure nine one one. I'm not sure what it is in your country. Um, if you're in assisted living, uh, you're a person with a disability living in assisted living. Then speak to a carer or another person that you trust about what is happening. If you have children, help them to know the warning signs of danger. Uh, children should be able to plan, discuss 
and practice steps they can take to be safer at home when there is violence or abuse. And children need lots of affection and care when they're exposed to uh, disquiet, extreme disquiet violence or abuse in their home. Um, have a safe place to go if you need it. I know we're veering off sort of just pure finances here. Um, and pack an escape bag in case you need to leave the house quickly. Have an escape plan ready. And you can make those kind of plans um, with the help of your local domestic abuse organisations. Um, yeah, so because the uh, the reason I'm, I'm referring to this when the question was just about finances is because often uh, financial matters are a trigger point. They're a, a real soft spot. They're a, an explosive area uh, that will, will cause other abuse if someone disobeys a narcissist or challenges them or whatever. They find that, that you've been doing financial things behind their back. As you know, what's good for for them is not good for other people. They might think they're allowed to do that sort of thing, but nobody else is. And so finances can be a really explosive area. And yeah, I'd advise you to um, speak to someone, speak to a financial advisor, maybe speak to your b bank. But when you do this, make sure that the person that you're speaking to has adequate training. You can just ask them. Do you, have you been trained in um, coercive control and domestic abuse? And um, yeah, make sure that so make sure that they uh, that they're they're trained, and ask them if they have anything ready, if they've had experience of the, doing this in the past, and if they have planned this out because they probably have. You're not the only or the first person to experience this. Narcissists love, absolutely love, to make people close to them loved ones, whether it's parents upwards or people who should be equal partners or children. They love to create dependencies in other people because that's how they get power and control over you. Um, so it's a it's a big question and a very very difficult one. You're in a difficult position, um, but obviously the first step would be to get your own bank account. But take it to the bank, ask the bank if they have a domestic abuse specialist, and do it that way. Thank you. That was very very helpful. Let's go to the last question. What are the most reliable red flags that I can search for in people to steer clear of narcissistic abuse? <laughs> yeah, I guess everyone will have a different answer to this. Everyone with lived experience of narcissistic abuse would have a, a slightly different answer. But I know as a clinician, um, uh, treating, uh, teaching other clinicians the basics about narcissistic abuse, because we don't learn this in at uni our universities all the way through to masters and phd level we don't learn 
um, any of this stuff. And I'm now just starting to teach other counsellors, people who are counsellors in my country, about it, about narcissism. And so with those trainings, I always say the two greatest factors are driving narcissistic behaviour or to look out for are entitlement and extreme lack of empathy. So how do we rec how do we identify those those are big categories those are big umbrella categories and that's where you know we get down into the nitty-gritty of how do you identify entitlement and how do you identify lack of empathy um, so then that would take me to the next level down if you like from those umbrellas and I would always say the first quickest and easiest is to use the no test with anybody what happens when you say no to a person or when you set a boundary with a person how do they respond do they throw a two-year-old temper tantrum or start to use their positional power for example if they're your boss to um, to punish you in some way or did they say, okay, then fine, and respect your boundaries and back off and reach a compromise? Um, because if they seriously are narcissistic and beyond beyond redemption, they'll do the former. They'll throw a tantrum or co they'll be more covert. They'll covertly punish you. I'm sure you've ex people listening here have experienced that with workplace narcissists, that they will punish you. Um, in a covert way, using other justifications for, you know, giving you crappy work to do or blocking your work from being recognised or making sure that you aren't a part of, you aren't rewarded, you aren't recognised, you don't have a career progression, whatever, in, in the workplace. And in um, in terms of a lack of empathy, uh that's really difficult to to pick uh first up because you sort of need to know a person and have experiences with the person but um if you've ever seen the bbc television series humans of a few years ago which was about a science fiction show about uh synthetic humans synths or uh, they used the slang term dollies. And these were robots that were, looked exactly like humans. Um, they had, you know, skin and they spoke like us and everything, but they were just robots inside. That's how you pick a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you pick a person of extremely low empathy. Um but you know you need discernment you need you need, you don't want to make the wrong assessment of a person but they're a bit like synths so they don't respond um with in the normal way if they you experience um for example when there's something some pain of some kind um you can tell a low empathy person because they don't resonate 
at a normal human level the way we do when when we're with someone who is experiencing a strong emotion we usually begin to feel a, that that emotion ourselves a degree of that emotion ourselves we resonate with it that's what empathy is it bounces off our mirror neurons and that doesn't happen with people of low empathy so if there's a highly stressful, highly difficult, highly emotional situation and there's one person there who's treating it like it's no big deal, that person's lacking in empathy, most likely. Yeah. Thank you. That was a very good one. So it's what that your answer made me think was that if you interact with a possible narcissist or with a person who lacks empathy and those kind of situations where where normal or normal response would be to show some kind of empathy that what you should look for is that are they do do they give out a feeling that they are maybe just blank or empty inside or is that what you mean because that made I say this because you mentioned the robots that maybe they give out an answer because they have been uh, coded to give some answer, but it's like lacking any emotion or like actual empathy. That, yeah. yeah, that's that's sort of one where we get into really muddy waters because, as you will know, with the clinical definition of narcissists, narcissism is that in addition to um, a severe empathy deficit, they also have... Um, a chameleon-like quality. So they do have a very highly developed ability to mimic behavior that they've seen in other people. So they can give a really, really good, you know, that's particularly with the covert presentations, their part of their personality strategy over time has been to copy people around them to give a really good impression of for example, care or humility or, um, I don't know, being a being a thoughtful, caring, decent human being. Um, mm. So they do learn to, over, over a, a lifetime, how to do that. And, and that makes it very, very difficult for us to spot them. Um, yeah. So as you know, this is... is incredibly complex psychology and uh, the interplay between a narcissist and the victim survivor the type of personality that they typically interact with which is someone of high empathy high often very high moral um, high virtue if you like um, yeah it's it's really really complex and especially again especially with the covert presentation because they are dr jekyll they look like doc nice dr jekyll and it's only you know at the worst moments that you realize that actually they've also got a very highly developed mr hyde more highly developed mr hyde than the rest of us because we all of course we all have good and bad in us we we you know in my opinion we have um these two spectrums and we we fall somewhere along from good and evil 
um, we're getting into sort of spiritual territory here, mm-hmm. which I didn't mean to do. But let's assume that there is a spectrum and that and that we are all human beings are all born with with the possibility that we could we can choose evil, we can choose good, we can choose to be bad, we can choose to be good, and somewhere in between. And it seems to me that um, the lack of empathy and the lack of ability to predict how their behaviour is going to affect other people is what takes what takes so many uh, narcissists up into the antisocial end of the spectrum. Because I always tell the story about that I read about a psychopath. Um, in, in one of Dr. Hare's books, he, he studies psychopaths, and it was the it was uh, he was he interviews mostly prisoners because as you probably know you know only unsuccessful psychopaths end up in jail and the jails are full of them. The successful ones are running our major companies, but um, <laughs> yeah, this this he interviewed this guy and and. He asked him, why do you think that, uh, uh, anyway, the quote is from this psychopath, I really don't understand, I really don't understand why the bank teller threw up all over the money because if someone put a gun to my head, I wouldn't throw up. And to me that quote sums it up beautifully that he's just said so much in that one observation he said he doesn't understand normal human behavior based on how how he feels and that's what we all kind of do because he wouldn't be upset if someone held a gun to his head so he cannot understand the harm he is doing by holding a gun at someone's head have I gone too too far into a weird story there? <laughs> no, no, that was that's very eye-opening. That was mm. a great, great example. I think. Yeah. So I think this is always a, a you know, it, it's it's. I don't think it's correct for us to assume that when narcissists do terrible things to us, or psychopaths or sociopaths do terrible things to us, it's because they're motivated by the desire to be evil, an evil person. You know, it, it all it takes is a profound lack of empathy for them to be able to do terrible things that have terrible, cause us dreadful harm. Um, so, you know, people often ask, and you see it a lot, I see it a lot around the blogs around the world, does the narcissist know what he's doing, he or she is doing? You know, do, are they deliberately trying to hurt us? Well, yes, of course, we know that that at the high end of the spectrum, narcissism spectrum, vindictiveness is an indicator, is one of the indicators of um, antisocial uh, personality disorder, you know, the high end of the narcissist spectrum. Um but somewhere in between there, there's a lot of their behaviours that they just don't get it. They just don't understand. They just think I deserve, for example, I deserve all the, I need 
to, to have all the money from the relationship in the settlement because I'm, you know, superior. <laughs> I obviously need um, all the money in the divorce settlement, so blah, 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 and on we go because they just can't conceive that by a part of part of that's mixed the bundle of that's mixed up with their vindictiveness and other things is a lack of empathy and a lack of comprehend basic comprehension that of how cruel it is to leave their former partner you know homeless and in poverty so it's a mixture to me anyway that's how i see it. it's a mixture of of just zero empathy and possibly vindictiveness and there's a distinct uh difference between the two we kind of i went off on a tangent there sorry <laughs> we were talking no. about red flags and i ended up there somehow <laughs> no i really i really like this podcast episode it was um like we talked about other stuff too than just the questions i think also the stuff that we added that you added helps i i hope that it helps the person who asked those questions to understand it maybe more fully because like you said many of the questions there is no one right answer and it's because this issue is so complex so it's yeah. kind of sometimes hard to answer answer to yeah. these yeah. questions and like you said how do you like lack of empathy it's not just like if you if you just said okay well the red flag is lack of empathy and leave it there it's pretty hard to then like what is it what does it mean in practice what is lack of empathy so we i think we need to deepen um, mm. these answers just the way you have done in this episode and thank you for that a lot Thank you. It's been it's been great to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, today we had very great questions and great answers. And thank you for listening to this episode. And thank you, Nikki, one more time for joining me and answering these questions. It's great. And I look forward to next time. <laughs>